0: As you learned a couple weeks ago, the gospel is not a story of reality. It is the story of reality. And we live in a world where if you've ever talked to people about what they believe, if you've ever had the great opportunity and, and privilege to discuss with people the things that really matter, how this world functions, how they see reality, how they're getting through the world, you begin to realize real quick that most people do not have a worldview that is coherent, uh, that that makes sense of the way they live. They may not even have a worldview. You may realize that most people are getting by, like Viktor uh, uh, Frankl says, on scraps of meaning, that they kind of hodgepodge together a patchwork quilt of, of a view of reality that oftentimes are incoherent with one another. And and it's not surprising then, when those inconsistencies, they bump up to them in real life, they're not sure how to navigate life, because the very infrastructure that they use to get through life is not strong enough to carry the weight of that inconsistency, and it falls apart. And so we as Christians, we have, folks, the gospel is not a picture, it's the picture of reality. It makes sense of the world. In all of its complexity and beauty and, and tragedy, it makes sense of reality. And we want to be able to articulate that to people. So this conference, it's not, 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 it's not an evangelism conference per se, right? But it is a conference where we want to be able to be equipped to, to at least put a stone in someone's intellectual shoe, to make them go, ah, oh, something, you just told me something and now I can't get through life the way I thought I could. I got to deal with this. Because we live in a world where there's so many counterfeits, and, and we want to be able to be equipped to spot the counterfeits, engage the counterfeits, because what we have, people need, right? Or else, why do we gather week in and week out? Why are we doing this if it's not the hope of humanity that the gospel proclaims itself to be? Because we live in a world where there's a lot of gospels out there. Some are very overtly religious, some are not. Some, some guys themselves as Christianity, some don't, but they're all gospel messages, they're all saying what, what, what's wrong with the world, what's the salvation, and who's going to make it right, right? And so we want to be able to articulate and engage people with that. You know, I was thinking, um, there was an article in USA Today that said that in 2006, $64 million in the US economy were counterfeits. Did you realize that? $64 million. But in, that, that's better because in 1994, according to this article, $209 million were counterfeits circulating around. Look in your wallet. There might be some of those that are fake in there, right? The trade association uh, says that in in 2005, 22% of all the brand name apparel that's sold worldwide is a fake, right? So the next time someone's showing off their nice Nike kicks or Armani, there's a one in five chance that it's a phony, right? And and it's not just uh, uh, financial reasons that people counterfeit things. We can have personal reasons. It just came into my mind when I was talking first hour. When I was in high school, I didn't do much homework. Um, Actually, I don't think I did any homework in high school. I just, I just, so, but inevitably I got bad grades, but not to get in trouble, I learned with a little liquid paper, an X-Acto knife, carbon paper, a good old school typewriter and a photocopier, I could counterfeit the report card and change the grades. And I got so good at it, I charged $5 for each friend to change their grades. If I just used that to actually do homework, I would have done, I wouldn't need to change grades. The point is, whether it's multi-billion dollar scams or high school kids not wanting to get in trouble, the world is fake, full of phonies, forgeries, fakes, charlatans, counterfeits, right? And, and, and the reason our weekend, this week, coming weekend, is so important is that the spiritual realm is not lacking in its amount of deceptors and deception and shams, right? We shouldn't be surprised we should be equipped to engage because Jesus even told us, Matthew 13, if you're a note taker, write down Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. He, he talks about the parable of the wheat and tares and says that as a man went out and sowed seeds into the ground, there were some, uh, I forget the word they use, but other men who came in and sowed, sowed other seeds, uh, wheat, uh, wheat amongst the tares, or tares amongst the wheat, I forget. The problem was with the good seed up grew bad. So much so that even Paul the Apostle, as as his ministry was was going out into the world, that there were always false teachers, false brothers, sowing seeds of false gospels behind him. So when he said goodbye to the elders in the church of Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it's gonna be on the screens right here, he, he warned them, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God Which he obtained with his own blood. I don't think I put the whole verse up there. Yes, I didn't put the whole verse up there. So let me read it from my notes. Sorry, Marilyn was kind enough to remind me, and I I guess I made a mistake. Um, I know, verse 20, oh, that's what it was. I only put verse 28 up there. Verse 29, I know that after I leave, Paul says, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples away from them. So he warned the Ephesian elders, we're talking within decades of the gospel, the decades of Jesus' lifetime, Paul says, look, savage wolves are going to come in, and even from your own, they're going to rise up to deceive people. Paul later, in discipling Timothy in the pastoral epistles, would write in 1 Timothy 4.1. I think this, screen, this, this passage is right. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Verse 2 says, these teachers are hypocrites and liars. They pretend to be religious, but their consciences are dead. And so it's not surprising that we in the 21st century need to be engaged to equip or equipped to be engaged in these ways because at the very beginning of it all, the very first century, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, warned the church, look, you've got to be prepared because from the beginning, wherever the gospel was proclaimed, there's going to be false gospels as well. There will be false teachers and false brothers preaching false gospels. In other words, there's always going to be counterfeits. There's always going to be counterfeits. And in our passage this morning, Galatians 2 1 through 10, Paul is, in some sense, dealing with the accusation that he himself is a counterfeit. The false teachers have been trying to undermine Paul's credibility because Paul had been preaching a gospel of grace, of free grace, that God, in his magnificence and in his plan because of his love, paid the debt of sin because humanity couldn't. It's too big a debt. And so God took care of it, and those who would exercise absolute dependence and trust in what God did, he would be, they would be forgiven and restored and reconciled. But the Judaizers, the false teacher, said, no, that's, it's not that easy. You have to have the markers of being a Jew. You have to jump through certain hoops. Grace isn't free. You have to earn it somehow. And so in their case, you had to be circumcised. You had to observe the Jewish dietary laws. Now, we don't have those issues today, but that tension still exists. Is the gospel free? Am I completely trusting Jesus Christ and His work, or in some way do I trust my own work? Back back behind this, before the service started, I talked to Adam and thought, you know why we love singing good, gospel-centered worship songs? Because it's truth that we are singing, and we need that. I said, how weird would our sound, songs sound like if we actually sung how we actually think about things, right? That one song, the cross is enough, and as long as I don't lose my temper, God loves me, right? You would, you would, that would be weird to sing, right? Jesus did it all, and as long as I do at least three quiet times this week, he loves me. Well, that would just seem odd. The reason we love singing these songs is because it's the pure truth of the gospel, if we actually had to sing what we actually, the way we functionally live, that we believe, that Jesus loves me as long as I don't lose my temper, Jesus loves me as long as I perform well, we would be really feeling weird when we sang that. And so, Paul is defending the fact that his message came directly from God, that his, his apostolic ministry was divinely given to him from God. And in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10… Paul is showing how unique a role he plays in redemptive history, and he does it in three short sections. He presents the truth of his gospel in verse 1 and 2, and he presents the proof of his gospel in verses 3 and 5, and then he receives the praise of the apostles in verses 6 through 10. I'm not sure at one point the announcement ended and the sermon began, but here we are, so we're just going to keep going forward. And in our passage, as you know from last week, Paul has been making an airtight argument about his unique role in in redemptive history. In order to do that, he had to show how he uniquely was a channel of God's revelation. And so, if you're a note taker, these are the kinds of patterns, I just love how God's Word is written. So, first he establishes that he's a unique channel of God's revelation, apart from all of humanity in general. So, he said that in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, when he said, look, God directly gave this to me. So, humanity had nothing to do with it. Furthermore, it wasn't as if the Syrian or Judean churches discipled him and somehow he got the message from them. That's the point he made in verses 18 to 24. This morning, he's making the point that, look, not even the Jerusalem church gave me the gospel message. And then next week, he's actually going to confront Peter, who's like the the CEO of the Jerusalem church, because even Peter gets it wrong. So, Paul's establishing that he, above everything else, is a unique channel of God's revelation. And the reason this is so critically important is because God chose Paul as his vessel to bring the gospel message to the Gentile world, right? That includes just about, I think I only had one Jewish person in our congregation last hour, but the rest of us are, are the Gentiles. And so, it was so important that there be an understanding that that gospel message was identical to the message that Jesus brought to the nation of Israel, right? And so, even to this day, if you've ever heard people say things like, I like Jesus, but Paul, he seems a little bit more cranky. Jesus is about love and all these great things, but Paul is talking about God's wrath and judgment and living a certain way. I don't know if I like that message. That's the same kind of thing that's going on, And it needed to be very clear that, no, 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 the the message that the disciples were spreading that they got from Jesus is identical, in essence, to the message that Paul is giving. Because, by the way, just as the disciples got it from Jesus in his earthly ministry, Paul got the gospel message from Jesus in a divine ministry. And so that's what Paul is dealing with here. So let's look at it point by point. Number one, verses one and two, how Paul presents the truth of his gospel— then after 14 years, Paul is giving his chronology, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul is continuing his autobiographical story that he started in chapter 1, verse 10, and says for the second time now, he's going to Jerusalem. Now, you remember from last week, the first visit Paul made to Jerusalem is recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, 23 and following. This is his second visit, and at that time, nobody even wanted to deal with him. No, they were too afraid of who this man was. So, the second time he goes up because of a revelation. Now, write down if you're a note taker, Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. And go home and read that. It's astounding. So there's a prophet, uh, Agabus I think was his name, who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch where Paul was ministering along with Barnabas and Titus. And he said, there is a famine coming. There will be a famine in the time of Claudius the emperor. And so they were raising a collection to help the, 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 the poorer disciples in Jerusalem. And Paul said, this is a great opportunity to go to the Jerusalem church and present the gospel that I have been preaching to the Gentiles for 15 years. Now someone might say, Isn't that a tacit admission by Paul then, that you need to be approved by the Jerusalem church? Isn't Paul admitting that he needs to get clarification or be verified or vetted by the disciples in Jerusalem, especially when you look at verse 2? Look at verse 2, what he says. In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So, isn't Paul saying, oh, now I have a good opportunity. I better make sure that the Jerusalem brothers and sister check out on this. That's not what he's saying. We know clearly, Paul said it in chapter 1 verse 10 through 12, that the revelation of the gospel was given to him directly by by God. So he is not waffling here. He is not hoping he gets approval from the Jerusalem church at all. That is not why he's looking forward to going down there. His commission was divinely authorized by God himself. But he also recognized that his ministry, his commission could not be executed effectively without the Jerusalem church at the same time. You see, a division between the Gentile mission and the mother church in Jerusalem would have been disastrous. Christ, the body, would be divided. You see, Paul knew what he was afraid of, what he wanted to present to the brothers, what he was trying to avoid was a schism in the church. Paul recognized that as the gospel spread like wildfire to the Gentile world, it was transcending all the national ethical markers of Judaism from which it came. And if they weren't all on the same page, the essence of the gospel, but with different applications and manifestations, that the body of Christ would be divided and right out of the gate, we would have two fundamentally different churches. Paul realize that unity amongst the growing diversity of what God was doing among gathering a people for himself was essential for the church. Even though he had no doubt that his gospel message was in fact the same gospel message, he wanted to maintain the unity of the church. And this is such an important realization that the need to maintain unity. Now, if we look in our culture, my friends, that we are a culture that is fragmenting at the seams. We have a culture that um, at one time in our short history, we were a much more unified people, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, if you go back to the 1800s and the early half of the 20th century, everything from our economy to our policies, even the war, all these forces were pushing Americans together. And you see it most vividly in the 1950s when everyone looked the same. It was conformity was the key, but there was an underlying current that we're not all the same. We're, there's a, we're, we're different. We're an immigrant nation. But since then, and this is not a political thing, this is just an observation, the, 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 the mantra now in our culture is diversity, right? It's all different, but there is a lacking sense of, but what makes us the same? We all want to be, We recognize that we're, we're, we're more than just one, but now it's just all this diversity, but we have no sense of common value. And, and by definition, you can't make diversity your unifying factor, right? I mean, you just that doesn't work. You can't say, what makes us one is that we're all not one. But that's kind of the mantra that we're hearing in our culture. We're all individuals and we're all diverse, but we're longing for unity. You see, the world will not find it because, by definition, there's, there's nothing that grounds the diversity that we so desperately want. So our correction's been an overcorrection, and, and here's the thing that's amazing. Even in the church, they recognize that there has to be this unity and this diversity. But what's going to bind that together? As the gospel goes out to the world, a very, very, very pluralistic, different world, that's the way it was in the first century, we are actually now, in my opinion, getting to be more like the world was in the first century than ever before. The pluralism, the rank different views of things, that was all over the place that the early Christians dealt with. But here's the interesting thing. At the very fountainhead of the Christian faith, the very fountainhead and I'm going off the range because I didn't have… I'm just, this, is, this is not my notes, so let's see how this goes. The very fountainhead of the Christian faith, what does Deuteronomy chapter 6 say? The Lord our God is one. Throughout the whole Testament was this idea that God is one, this unifying factor. But then as we get to the New Testament, we realize something amazing, that this God who is one being includes how many persons? Three, very diverse in function and character. Not in character, but in function. So the very fountainhead of the Christian faith is this unity that exists with diversity, but it gets better. And the Bible tells us that throughout all time immemorial, the three fellowshiped in what? Community. The very thing our world's dying to find, a way to balance unity, our diversity, and have community. Community the very fountainhead of a Trinitarian view of God. And, and this is, I mean, this is, this is not even the, more, the most exciting things. This is just the foundation of the Christian faith, that it's a unity in diversity, eternally in community. That's what the world's looking for. And we have that. We have that at the very first line of the Bible of God, who He is. He said, let us make man And the world's so desperately looking for that. That that was completely off the range. The point that Paul was getting at though when he went to the Jerusalem church is he wanted to maintain this unity. It was so important to him. It was so important that the church stay one even above his own ministry to the Gentiles. This is profound. Paul valued the unity of the church even more than the the value of his own ministry to the Gentiles, so much so that he would present this to the apostles and submit himself to their leadership. And this is really significant. In in our individualistic culture, right, That, that is the mantra of our day and age, it is easy to forget that amongst all of us, God is trying to create a people, a people, Not a collection of individuals with our own ministries and visions and agendas and grandiose ideas god is calling a people to fulfill his purposes for the world through the church and so often you may have seen it people will value their personal ministry so much that they'll trample over the church just so they can do their ministry you ever seen that it's pretty sad and if anybody could have done that guess what it would have been paul right Hey guys, I think we should do this because after all, I'm the apostle to the world. So why don't we do it my way? But he didn't do that. He wanted to speak to the apostles. And he did it privately so that if there was any misunderstanding, it wouldn't trample the church or cause disunity. So verse 2 says, I met with these who were, uh, let's see, I met privately with these, though privately before those who seemed influential. Paul was more concerned with God's plan for humanity through the church than he was for God's plan for humanity through his own personal ministry. He valued the church even above his own desires, and so should we. So, Paul lays out to the apostles this gospel that he had been proclaiming amongst the Gentiles, and and, and not merely the content, but the practical outworkings of it, in that Jew and Gentile come together in the church. You remember, for those of you who've been here when I studied Ephesians, that the church was God's surprise plan on humanity. Up until that time, it was just the Jewish nation. And he says, guess what? It is now transcending this ethnic ethnic people group and it's including everybody. And it's this thing called the church. If you've ever wondered how Christianity formed from being a predominantly Jewish uh, religious system that came from Judaism to a predominantly Gentile world religion... You see it right here, Galatians 2, Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 15. Those were their turning points where Christianity transcended, broke through the bounds of his ethnic uh, legacy in Judaism, and Paul was recognizing this and yet wanted to maintain unity with the original church as well. So, so Paul presents his gospel to the disciples, verse 1 and 2, and then verse 3 and 5, Paul presents the proof of his gospel, you can just imagine Paul uh, remember when Daryl read us the book of Galatians, there's passion in this book, and you can almost sense that passion dripping off his pen as if in verse 3, he, he all of a sudden remembers an, an important point that he absolutely has to make or he'll forget about it, so he stops his argument in chapter, at verse 2 and, and makes a side point that's so important in verses 3 to 5. And then picks up his argument in verse 6. The reason you know that this was kind of a, 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 side, a, a, a side trip for Paul is you could read verses 1 and 2, skip 3, 4, and 5, pick it up in verse 6, and you still have the same argument. So, Paul is so full of passion that he, he has to write about this. Now, my friends, this is why sometimes reading the Bible can be a little bit challenging because it's it's real person like Paul, real men who are filled with excitement over these amazing truths, and they, they start in one verse, and then they go on and remember an Old Testament truth that connects to this, and then they write about that, and then they remember how Jesus modeled that, and then they write about that, and then that leads to this and that and the other thing, and, and you go far, five, five or six verses, and you're like, what is going on here? And then they come back to it, Right? This is how we are in everyday life, because what they're not writing is just a static, I am writing Holy Scripture to you. This is a a heart on fire put on page, and you can see that in some of the way he writes. And so, he's writing to real people in real situations in real circumstances. So, like that note that Luke puts in 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 Acts 11, 27 to 30, that Paul alludes to here, he says, a revelation that came. The revelation that's being spoken of was from Agabus, a prophet, who said, Guys, there is a famine coming, and it's going to come in the time of Claudius the emperor. So we got to take care of the saints in Jerusalem. Let's raise money. And Paul and Barnabas, you go down there. This is amazing, is that, you know what? Now, because of that little historical note, we know exactly when this is taking place. I love the richness of the historicity of the Bible. Because Luke put it down there and said the famine, the great famine that took place in Claudius the emperor's time. Well, you know, you don't need to go to the Bible to find out when that was because that's in regular history everywhere. And so, we know these real events took place. And so, Paul thinks about this amazing proof of his gospel, and it's his friend Titus. He says, Titus, Titus is a full Greek. And after being in Jerusalem, presenting the gospel message to the apostles, they didn't put any burden on Titus. If at any church they could have put a burden on Titus, if he wants to be part of God's people, he needs to do X, Y, and Z, it would have been at the Jerusalem church. If anybody could have had the authority to put on Titus before you're part of God's people, you need to do X, Y, and Z, it would have been the apostles. And Paul says, look, Titus at the Jerusalem church in front of the apostles, they didn't put anything on him, and they recognized him as one of the believers. Paul's making the argument that if at Jerusalem in front of the apostles, there was no extra duty put on Titus to be a believer, then there's nothing that can be put on any Gentile anywhere. Verse 4, the reason this is coming up, and and, and I recognize this can be a challenging sermon to track with, because Paul is writing in the book of Galatians, remembering an event that took place a few years ago, and in verse 4, he said, as he's writing, he says, I remember this, Galatians, the very thing you're struggling with, that you need to do certain things to be accepted by God, we kind of dealt with this already in Jerusalem when I was back there. And the reason this came up then, look at verse 4, I'm going to read it from the NIV because I like the way the NIV brings it out. This matter arose, this issue of Titus being circumcised or not, because some false teachers noticed that. The New King James says it this way, and this whole issue occurred because of false brothers who had come in. So, the same issue that the Galatians are dealing with, is the gospel free grace, or somehow we have to work for our salvation, was the same issue that kind of came up there. And it says it didn't apply to Titus, so it can't apply to anybody. Now, whether or not these are the same false teachers, we do not know. Paul, the text doesn't tell us, but their aims and outlooks were the same. It was to put an extra burden on people. You can't be a Christian. It's not that easy. You need to do X, Y, and Z, and then God accepts you. The gospel says, no, 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 no. Jesus did X, Y, and Z. That's why God can accept you. But since false teaching is so prevalent, let's take a look at that in verse 4. The very first part of it, verse 4a. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ... Let's talk about that. Notice the first characteristic of false teaching. Paul uses a specific word, the spy out word. That's the same word used to describe in the book of Joshua chapter 2 when the, the Hebrew spies kind of snuck in to spy out Jericho. It's the same exact word. They snuck in quietly to spot the weak parts, to see the vulnerable points of 10, where you could kind of get in. False teaching comes in very secretly, very quietly, very subtly, and it looks for the weak spot. It looks for the spot that you can be tempted most to be deceived. Now, if you are a Christian, false teaching is rarely going to come into your life the way, in a way that's so obvious and clear that you can avoid it. If you are in a good Bible teaching church, if you are in God's Word, there isn't a good likelihood that the false teaching, and the Bible, by the way, is just a myth. I think we made it up. Is ever going to deceive you. That's not how you will be deceived by false teaching. In our culture, we are blessed to live in an area where Christianity is, there's a lot of sympathy towards it. You're not going to get that as much. But here's some false teaching that might actually get you. You're too busy. To study God's word on your own. And after all, it's really confusing, isn't it? And, I mean, that's why you go to church, isn't it? So you don't have to do that study. Has that false teaching sabotaged your spiritual strength? That's another one. You don't have time to get involved in other people's lives. You're too busy to serve on a Sunday morning and go to a service. Has that false teaching derailed your ability to be faithful? God's people week in and week out. Right, here's the last one. You don't know enough. Ah, you haven't been a Christian long enough, therefore you shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z. Has that false teaching undermined possible opportunities in your life to be used by God? See, false teaching will never come so blatantly that we can spot it like Jesus is not God. It's going to come in these other ways that are subtle, that look for the weak spot, areas you can be tempted to believe. You don't have time. You can't understand that. You're not good enough to do that. That's where false teaching will get us. Second characteristic of false teaching first one is it comes in subtly, secretly. The second one, verse four, and the first four, it comes to enslave. They came to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they may bring us into slavery. False teaching will always make a slave of someone. Notice Paul's use of those words, freedom and slavery, such vivid language, because Paul understands the gospel always brings freedom, but things less than the gospel, individualism, legalism, moralism will always bring a kind of slavery. So, let me me illustrate that with the false teaching I just mentioned. Studying God's Word, right? Getting into God's Word enlightens us and it equips us. It, it helps us to see reality the way it ought to be, right? It helps us understand that without understanding God's Word. But the Bible itself, God's Word itself says it makes the simple wise, it opens our eyes, it enlightens us to see reality. Without that, we are enslaved to our own and our culture's opinions and ideas that go back and forth like crashing waves on a beach. Secondly, serving others. That frees us from the chains of our own self-importance and self-centeredness, doesn't it? There is nothing more enslaving than living a life that cannot see beyond its own self, right? But see, these are the realities that God's Word confronts us with. See, Paul understood, which is why in verse five it says he wouldn't give in to these false teachers for a second. What was at stake? A real picture of reality. A maturing Christian understands that true freedom is not defined by us being able to do what we want, but us being able to do what we should. And so Paul presents this proof in, in Titus, and then as a result, he receives praise from the apostles. Look at our last four verses this morning. Uh, Paul makes this amazing proof of Titus and then the apostles. What's interesting about these six verses or these four verses is do you notice Paul's apparent use of sarcasm? Notice three times in four verses, he uses the phrase, they seemed to be influential. It's there in verse six, twice in verse six, and then in verse nine, he keeps saying, they seemed to be influential. Keep in mind, who's Paul writing to? Who's Paul writing to the book of Galatians to? The Galatians, who had been hearing from false teachers, who are saying that Paul is less than the disciples and apostles at Jerusalem. They're trying to undermine Paul's credibility by over the disciples in Jerusalem. Paul's whole point here, all the way to the end of chapter 2, is disproving that accusation. Now, although these men were worthy of esteem, Paul is saying that these false teachers esteem them too highly and for the wrong reasons. So, verse 6, who were they that made no difference to Paul, right? He talks about these people here in Jerusalem, they don't make any difference to me. Well, who were they? Verse 9, Paul tells us, it was James, Cephas, also known as Peter, and John. Okay, so, so who was James, Peter, and John that made no difference to Paul the Apostle? James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Pretty impressive. Peter and John were his disciples throughout his entire earthly ministry and were part of that kind of inner circle that Jesus really poured into. Pretty impressive. All three of these men had a direct, personal connection to the historical Jesus. These are connections that Paul himself did not have. And guess what? He says here, But it makes no difference because God, in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, shows no partiality. Even though these men, one was Jesus' half-brother, the other two were with Jesus through the entirety of His three years of ministry, it doesn't make a difference because God shows no personal favorites. And furthermore, the gospel came to me as a direct revelation. The source is the same. So, the same gospel that these 12 disciples were putting out is the same gospel that Paul the apostle was putting out. On the contrary, it says in verse 7, not only did they not correct me, rebuke me, or I try to complete my message, they gave me, in verse 9, the right hand of fellowship. In the original Greek, it says they gave me a high five. No, I'm just kidding. say in original Greek. the point is. When he presented the gospel, all these men who all these false teachers esteem so highly, he said, Paul says, look, they're, they're, they're just like you and I. God shows no personal favorites. And furthermore, not only did they not add to my message, they said, yes, that is exactly what we're talking about. Now, we need to conclude, but Paul demonstrates two important qualities that are really important in these 10 verses. Number one, The first thing is, there needs to be a clear grasp of the gospel message and its implications. We as Christians need to have an understanding of what the gospel is and its implication for our lives. And and, and everyone in this room lives in a different reality in the sense that I don't have access to the people in your life, you don't have access to the people in mine. We all engage different parts of this reality whether it's at the office, at the home, at the neighborhood, or at school, we need to understand the gospel implications. How does it bear upon being an insurance salesman, right? How does it bear upon being a housewife? How does it bear upon being a student? What is the gospel picture of reality in this situation? We need to have a good grasp of that. Secondly, an ability to defend it from counterfeit and distortions while making the case for the real message, Because men and women throughout history were like Paul and stuck their flag in the ground for the truth of the gospel, we have it today, and we want to steward that to the next generation. And I love the reality that God has one gospel, one truth that we all share, but all of us are completely diverse to reach a very diverse world. That's God's intention To have unity and diversity and community together as a local church. I hope, and I hope that this weekend, those of you that attend are equipped to do that very thing. And as a church, we can continue to do that like this church has for 40 years. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example that Paul has set. Not just Paul and others in Scripture, but our history is full of men and women who fought for the truth of the gospel. Lord, we thank You that because of that, we understand that our salvation is a free gift. And Lord, so often we we get duped by false teaching that You love us conditionally because of this or that or the other thing. We can always go back to Your Word and be reminded that that is not the case, that You love us unconditionally because all the conditions have been met by Jesus Christ. It is Him we worship, it is in Him we trust, And we thank you in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.